Zechariah, the third chapter, found on page 794 in the Pew Bibles. This chapter contains one of eight visions that the Lord gave to Zechariah. And we read of that vision here in Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to your life and to mine as we look at it together this evening. Friends and the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who are familiar with the prophecy of Zechariah, know that he received eight different visions from the Lord. That is how the Lord often revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament era, just as he reveals himself today to us through his living and active word, the Holy Bible. And the vision that we read about here in the third chapter of Zechariah is the fourth of the eight visions given to Zechariah by the Lord. And it presents to us a striking picture It pictures for us first the sinfulness of even the most devout believer. As the passage begins, we see Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the most holy of people. He is the one who offered the sacrifices. He was the one who represented the people before God on the Day of Atonement. One time per year, 
It was the high priest who entered into the most holy place, into the holy of holies to sprinkle the blood, to offer the sacrifice. No other person could enter except for the high priest. And then only once per year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest enter that most holy place. God also gave specific instructions as to how the high priest must dress with sacred garments to give him dignity and honor in the words of Exodus 28, verse 2. And you can read 43 verses in Exodus chapter 28 with instructions for the high priest, including how the high priest must dress. In that chapter, the Lord describes the ephod worn by the high priest as a flowing robe of blue, gold, purple, and scarlet yarn, the work of a skilled craftsman. It was truly a beautiful robe. Exodus 28 also describes the breastplate having braided chains of gold and a place for the urim and the thummim a turban with a plate of pure gold on which were engraved these words, holy to the Lord. Specific instructions were even given concerning the priest's linen undergarments that they extend from the waist to the thigh. The last verse of chapter 28 of Exodus declares, this is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron, and for his descendants. And yet here in this vision, how is the descendant of Aaron, Joshua the high priest, dressed? Where is that beautiful ephod? Where is the breastplate with the golden strands, the beautifully crafted turban? Zechariah 3 verse 3, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This verse graphically teaches the sinfulness of even the most devout believer. Take Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, William Hendrickson, Louis Burkhoff, or any other Christian leader, whether contemporary or whether historic like Luther or Calvin or John Knox, or biblical examples like Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets, as well as the apostles, all of them were sinners and were unrighteous in and of themselves. Everyone who has ever lived, except for Jesus, is clothed in filthy rags until, until, by God's grace, there is saving faith in Christ alone. Only then are we clothed in those rich garments of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Consider Isaiah 64, verse 6, written by a holy, esteemed prophet of God's choosing. He writes, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us 
away. You and I, along with all the other people who have gone before, have nothing to bring to God except our filthy rags. We bring to Him nothing except our sin. A second truth that is pictured so graphically for us in this unique vision, this portrayal painted by the Holy Spirit is the work of Satan as an accuser. In verse 1 we read, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The name Satan is from the Hebrew word for accuser. And we find him living up to his name as he boldly stands at Joshua's right side to accuse him before God. Satan specializes in the accusation of God's people today, just as he did so long ago. Satan still accuses, but not from heaven, as before the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, but he still accuses so effectively and so persistently, he goes after every Christian to accuse them, to show them how unworthy they are before the Lord. The accusations of the devil are altogether different from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by God's grace, convicts us of our sin. He shows us our sin, but he does so in order that we go to the Lord in humble, sincere repentance, and the Holy Spirit grants us that blessed assurance of saving faith that our sins are covered by that precious blood of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, Satan accuses us in order to shake our faith to put doubt in our mind and in our heart concerning our salvation in an effort to take us away from our Lord and Savior and the security that we have in Him alone. In this vision, we also clearly see the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ as His righteous garments are put on Joshua, the high priest, In verse 2, the Lord rebuked Satan, and the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In this rebuke to Satan, we see the great compassion of our God. The Lord realizes that just as a stick is snatched from the fire and continues to smolder and burn. So we, who are snatched from the grip of sin, continue to smolder and burn with sin as we struggle against the evil desires of our own sinful natures and as we struggle against the temptations and accusations of the devil and the allurements of the world that are put before us. Our old sinful nature is like that burning stick. We are snatched from the fire of hell, but our old sinful nature still burns and lives in conflict with the Holy Spirit, who is graciously 
within us. Not only does the Lord rebuke Satan, however, but in verse 4, the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnation portrayal of Jesus Christ, says, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And in verse 5, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The rich garments, the clean clothes, the new turban, all show that now Joshua has been dressed in the righteousness of Christ as he is presented without spot, without blame, before the Father. In a Bible study on Genesis, we used a study guide one year entitled Joseph and Judah, written by Reverend Mark Vanderhart. And he pointed out in that study guide on several occasions the significance of clothing in Scripture. He pointed out that Joseph's coat of many colors was changed to an Egyptian robe and then to a prisoner's garment and finally to a royal robe as he ascended to be the second highest person of power within the Egyptian empire. He described how Tamar wore a widow's clothing until she heard that her father-in-law Judah was coming to Timnah, and then she put on the clothes of a prostitute and a veil over her face so that she could seduce him. And likewise, Jacob used Esau's clothes to deceive Isaac as he tricked his father into giving him the blessing that belonged to his brother. In Scripture, a variety of clothing is described, usually conveying great significance. As we come to church, whether we are in a suit or special dress or dressed casually or someplace in between, spiritually, there are only two ways to be clothed. We are either still in the filthy rags of our sin, unrepentant, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, or by God's grace, we are clothed in the righteous robes of our Redeemer. The scene that is pictured for us in this chapter portrays the essence of the whole gospel, that we who are unworthy... We who are clothed in filthy rags are dressed in the righteousness of Christ and presented to the Father spotless and without blame when we truly believe in Christ alone for our salvation. The scene that is portrayed in Zechariah 3 is a remarkable scene. It points us directly to Christ in the Old Testament. Christ at times is described as the angel of the Lord. The definite article, the, separates the Lord from other references to angels. 
And when people saw the angel of the Lord, they realized that they had seen the Lord himself and oftentimes feared for their very lives. And now it is the angel of the Lord who says to Joshua, the high priest, in verse 4, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It is by the redeeming work of Christ that we are clothed in clean, righteous robes rather than the filthiness of our sin. The clothing of Joshua the high priest and our clothing with the righteousness of Christ is only possible because of Christ's substitutionary atonement and redeeming work on our behalf. But to clothe us in his righteousness required the supreme sacrifice on the part of Jesus Christ. It required a life of ridicule, persecution, and humiliation. And that humiliation of Jesus Christ, which was evident throughout his earthly life, culminated when he reached Mount Calvary there at the cross. By faith in him alone, we are clothed in his righteousness, but our clothing in his righteousness is a result of him being stripped naked and crucified for our salvation. Do you recall the reason the Roman soldiers cast lots there at the base of the cross on Mount Calvary? It was for the seamless undergarment of Jesus Christ. John 19, verse 23 and 24, describe how when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it. They said to one another, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. John writes, I quoted John 19 verse 23 from the NIV the ESV, if you follow in that, translates undergarment as tunic, which is a proper translation of the Greek word. But their footnote in the ESV describes the tunic as a long garment worn under the cloak next to the skin. It was next to the skin. In other words, it was just like your underwear and just like mine. One commentator notes, they, the soldiers, did what was shameful, yet by means of that shameful deed, God's eternal plan was fulfilled. Hence, we pause in abhorrence and adoration. Jesus bore for us the curse of nakedness in order to deliver us from it, to deliver us from sin. That written by William Hendrickson in his New Testament commentary on the gospel 
of John. Although we commonly see portrayals of Jesus being crucified with that loincloth, Scripture makes it clear that even his undergarment was taken from him as for our sake. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is also the branch described in verse 8 and 9, as well as the servant. When it says, my servant, the branch, it is using messianic language, as is the stone as well. In verse 8, the Lord says, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. And then verse 9 describes that stone with seven eyes, meaning seven different facets. Again, it is messianic in that Jesus is the rock or the stone that causes many to stumble, but is of great joy to those who know him and trust him. Although there are different ideas on what the stone is and what it represents, The conclusion of the verse clearly points to Jesus Christ. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. You know what the single day was? The day they led Jesus out to the cross on Mount Calvary. There he suffered and died on the cross for the sins of all who, by his grace and Spirit's power, have saving faith in him alone. There, as the ultimate and only perfect high priest, he offered the ultimate and only perfect sacrifice for sin. He offered himself. All the Old Testament high priests, such as Joshua, the high priest, had to continually offer sacrifices both for their sins and for the sins of the people whom they represented. But when Christ, our great high priest, offered himself as a complete and perfect sacrifice for sin, he removes sin from us for all time. He never needs to repeat that priestly action. His words, it is finished rings across the ages and will echo throughout all eternity. It is finished, and we are redeemed by that perfect sacrifice of our Savior and Lord. Symbolically, that is shown to us by Christ ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there were furnishings, but there, there was no chair There was no chair for the priest to sit on because it represented that the priest's work was never done. He had to continually sacrifice one sacrifice after another for his sins and for the sins of the people. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, symbolically showing us that the work of redemption is completely done. It portrays and proves the prophecy of Zechariah 3, verse 9, that he would remove the sin of this land, the iniquity of this land, in a single day. 
Hebrews 10 serves as an inspired commentary on the effectiveness of the finished work of Christ. In verse 11 and 12 of Hebrews 10, we read, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. A number of applications spring from this remarkable scene painted for us by the Holy Spirit. First, if we have saving faith in Jesus Christ, it is by God's grace and his electing love that we believe. Did you pick that up in verse 2, where the Lord says to Satan that it is the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem? None of us can take credit for our salvation. It is all of God's grace and his electing love. In the words of Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Because God has chosen to redeem us, we are snatched from the fire As we have seen, the stick snatched from the fire can refer to that sinful nature that smolders within us, but it can also properly refer to how we are snatched out of the fire of hell by the electing love and redeeming grace of our Lord. The evangelist John Wesley was almost burned to death when he was six years old. A fire broke out in the home in which he was sleeping. Everyone was evacuated except for him. But just before the roof came crashing down, a neighbor who was standing on another man's shoulders was able to reach up into the window and pull John Wesley to safety. As you might imagine, that event etched itself into Wesley's mind over the years. And at one point, he met an artist who drew a picture for Wesley of his being rescued from that burning building. Wesley put the canvas-drawn picture in a wooden frame with the words of Zechariah 3, verse 2, written below the fiery scene. Back in his day, he used the old King James Version, which reads, Is not this a brand plucked from the burning? And in this passage, you and I are forcefully reminded that by the shed blood of Jesus and by his sacrificed body, by the electing love of the Father and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we too are brands plucked from the burning by our gracious and merciful triune God. We also see in this passage that if we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, we must live godly lives. In verse 6 and verse 7, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. 
And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Notice that this is not said before Joshua is justified, but afterward. Often the gospel is twisted, making it sound like we have to cleanse ourselves and make ourselves presentable to God, at least to a certain degree. And when he sees that we're really trying to be good, then he will reach down in grace and redeem us. But it's impossible for us to cleanse ourselves. As the Lord said in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or a leopard, it spots. Neither then can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Biblically, the cleansing is done first. The cleansing is done by God's grace through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Romans 5 verse 6 assures us that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And Romans 5 verse 8 adds that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's when we realize that, that Christ reached down into our lives. He snatched us from the fire, even though we were totally unworthy and are unworthy. It is then that we strive to have the obedience that comes from faith in the words of Romans 1.5. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches that same order. It begins with our guilt, with our sin and our misery, because you know as well as I do, I'm sure you've experienced as well as I have, that sin and misery always go together. But after describing our condition, the catechism describes at length God's grace through the giving of his Son. And then it concludes with our response of gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. That is why it is rightly summarized by those three familiar words of sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. Our communion preparatory form also addresses that. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, as you did this morning, we are reminded that we first must repent of our sins. Secondly, we must trust in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation. And then thirdly, the preparatory form for the Lord's Supper says, let each one examine his conscience to be sure that he resolves to live in faith and obedience before his Lord and in love and peace with his neighbor. Although in this life we all fall so far short of sinless perfection, our goal must always be that life of obedience of grateful service as we show our thankfulness for God's redeeming love. If our faith in Christ is real, then there must be that sincere and continual effort 
to have the obedience that comes from faith. And then a third application. It is only, only the redeemed who have true security and peace realized through saving faith in Christ alone. The peace and security of believers is represented in verse 10 by the imagery of the fig tree and the vine. The fig tree and the vine were frequently used in the Old Testament era to represent peace and security for the Israelites. Unbelievers try to give the impression that they have peace, that they have security, that they have true happiness and joy. And yet, although they desire to have it, they never attain that. As Isaiah 57, verse 20 and 21 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But we are reminded that our true peace and security comes from saving faith in Jesus. Romans 5, 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have that vertical peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then we also have horizontal peace. We have peace with others as we forgive others as we have been forgiven by God. And we have peace with circumstances, even very hard and trying circumstances. We have a peace, vertical with the Father, horizontal with circumstances and with others, and it is such a strong peace that the Scripture tells us it is a peace which surpasses, which transcends all understanding. Or in the words of Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. My mother, who was a widow for many years, had no worldly wealth, but she was very well dressed. She bought all of her clothes at used clothing stores and consignment shops. And did she ever get good buys? If you looked at the way she was dressed, you would say, that woman... That woman is a wealthy, sophisticated woman. But in reality, she had nothing. When she retired, she came and lived with my wife and I in Philadelphia because she had no other place to go, and she had no financial resources to find a place to live when she retired. On the other hand, in our church in Oregon... There was an elderly man who seemed to be poverty-stricken. His clothes were worn out. He looked like a street person, and he acted like a street person. You would see him during the week walking the streets of town, picking up the leftover cans, putting them in a plastic bag, bringing them in to be redeemed for a nickel apiece. His nickname could have been Safety Pin Man, because he used safety pins to tie his shirt together when the buttons fell off. 
And he used safety pins when his glasses would break to hold the frames together. He wouldn't go and get a new screw put in. He, he would simply put a safety pin in each side so you would see these two safety pins and the safety pins up and down his shirt. And people were sure that he was broke and they were amazed that he could afford to live in a little trailer on the outskirts of town. When he died, since he had no family, he left everything to the church. When the church people went to his little trailer, they saw his worn-out furniture, the worn-out dresser, and they opened the drawer, and there were certificates of deposit and checking and saving accounts. There was cash. There were gold and silver coins. The church, which had been meeting in a grange hall, because it was small and struggling, was able to buy an existing building and was blessed greatly. They met in that building for decades until they bought a newer, larger building. But anyone who would guess their true monetary value, my mother and the safety pin man who was a dear friend of ours, would have been completely fooled. But God isn't fooled by how we are dressed. In his view, there are only two ways to be dressed. We are either dressed in the filthy rags of our sin, unrepentant, apart from Christ, under the just and proper wrath and judgment of Almighty God, or by God's grace, through saving faith in Christ alone, we are dressed in His righteousness, spotless and without blame before our triune God. And spiritually speaking, the way we are dressed makes all the difference in this world and it will make all the difference throughout all eternity. By God's grace, may you and I find that the filthy rags of our sin-stained wardrobe are truly replaced by saving faith in Christ alone. May we have that blessed assurance that we are now robed in the most wonderful of all garments, the righteousness of him who shed his blood and allowed his body to be pierced. He did so for the complete forgiveness of all the sins of all those who truly have saving faith in him alone. May that describe you and me this evening and always. Amen. How thankful we are O oh, living and eternal God, that you would clothe us in your righteousness, even though we have nothing to bring to you except our sin and the filthy rags of all our so-called righteous deeds. Grant us hearts of gratitude. Grant us out of gratitude a deep desire to live according to your word, to bring honor and glory to your name and to tell others of how the filthy garments of sin can be replaced with the righteous robes of the only Savior, your Son, our Lord, in whose precious name we pray, amen.